most of it is paying attention to the baby and what the baby says. So when a baby's crying, it's communicating, isn't it? We all know that. And there are different types of cry. And if an adult came to us crying, we wouldn't say, shh, 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 or try and, I mean, we might try and rock them. That's nice. It's nice to have, you know, the physical touch and the arms around you and things. Um, but we wouldn't be trying to silence them. You know, we, we'd be making sure all their needs are met. You know, do you need the toilet? Do you need something to eat? Do you need something to drink? But we wouldn't then try and silence them in the way that we try and silence babies. Hello and a very warm welcome to Mother Mouth, a platform I created to explore and converse and share about major life transitions, body connection, body sovereignty, purpose, joy and belonging. And where we are not shy to look at the challenges that we all face. So I'm your host, Stephanie Wiehowski, and I'm an artist, herbalist, and mother of a seven-year-old. And I'm still very new to this, so I'm trying to figure out how to do these intros, outros, etc. So please bear with me. Today I'm speaking to Joy Horner, also known as the wise woman on the hill, who lives in Glastonbury, which is probably a 40 minute drive from where I live. And yeah, I think I'm gonna read out her resume. So Joy has been a medically trained and registered midwife for 21 years and a nurse for 17 years. She worked for 16 years as an independent midwife, attending hundreds of home births and before that in consultant labor wards and birth centers. These days she calls herself a sacred birth keeper rather than a midwife and on her journey has visited Ina May Gaskin, um, author of Spiritual Midwifery at her farm in Tennessee, attended a year-long training course with Jane Hardwick Collins on shamanic midwifery or womancraft, learned breech birth skills from Mary Cronk MBE and taught these at university. Her practice is also trauma-informed and she supports people with complex needs. Birth debriefing and integrative baby therapy are part of her training and practice too. She learned this from Matthew Appleton and we will be talking about this in the podcast in a, quite a bit more detail. Also, I had wanted to talk to Joy very much about pregnancy, birth preparation and the challenges and medical emergencies that we can face um, during the birthing process and realistic birth expectations, really. But we ended up talking a lot more about postnatal care, which is also incredibly important and often very much neglected, not just in preparation, but also, you know, in our busy world, women who have given birth, they just don't really get the rest that is needed to heal after birth. So for the first part of the podcast, the first 30 minutes or so, we go into quite some detail looking at Joy's life journey, her experiences and pivotal moments on her life's path. And for the second part of the podcast, we mainly talk about postnatal care and integrative baby therapy and also how she practices now as a sacred birth keeper. So without any further ado, here we go. So welcome, Joy. Thank you so much for stepping into this conversation with me. And yeah, it's really a pleasure and an honor um, to be able to talk with you and to get an insight into your knowledge because you have worked for over 40 years in the field of childbirth and health 
And yeah, I feel it is really wonderful to talk to someone with such vast experience. And I'm wondering, as you have worked in so many different worlds, like from the very traditional NHS model um, with the midwifery, as well as in the home birth field, and then maybe now even more in a more holistic way as a sort of sacred birth keeper, what you see as the sort of major differences and approaches in these different environments. Yeah, and maybe what your reflections are from your own journey to become a secret birth keeper. I mean, I know this is a vast question <laughs> because it basically looks on, you know, your whole professional life and your life in general. But maybe we, or maybe you could focus on or think about either some pivotal revelations or pivotal experiences along the mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. yeah yeah that sounds good yeah <laughs> thank you and thank you for the lovely welcome <laughs> um yeah and it's quite shocking to hear that it's been 40 years since i i started my nursing um yeah that's that's a long time <laughs> i never thought i'd get to this point i never thought i'd stick with it But there we are. It, it stuck with me. Um, and I think I'd like to start by saying I never wanted to be a midwife or a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> and it was one of those things that my mum thought was a good profession to do. Um, and she didn't support me as a, an artist. So basically, I'm an artist. <laughs> But um, yeah, I wasn't allowed to do that because it wasn't a profession. It wouldn't earn money. And Do you know what? My mum was sort of right. You know, she was looking out for us, trying to set us up for the transferable skills and skills that would allow us to go out into the world and find our way. And it was my way to do that. So I left home at 19 and went straight into nursing school. And my mother told me <laughs> she wasn't a very nice woman, I have to say, my mother. And she's passed over now and we have a great relationship now. <laughs> bless her and she told me that I'd never be a nurse because I cried too much you'll never do it so they dropped me off at the nursing home you'll never do it joy and with those words ringing in my ears every difficulty I faced in that three-year training I remembered what my mum had said and I thought I'll prove you wrong hmm. I'm gonna prove you wrong yeah so the nursing was a, a good setup for really good care so back in 1984, I started, um, January 84, so it's, yeah, nearly 40 years, we had enough staff and enough time to give proper client-centered care. And it wasn't based around the computer. It wasn't based around protocols. It was based around the client. And it's going to sound really old-fashioned. We had books to remind us when to turn people and when to rub their back, you know, if they're bed bound and that they'd had a bed wash every day and tick lists. And it worked really, really beautifully. No one was forgotten. Everyone got the hands on one to one care. And that stood me in really good stead for my midwifery, because although I didn't want to be a nurse. So when we qualified, we got to be staff nurse and then you could progress and be sister and matron and all the rest of it. And I never wanted to climb the hierarchy. I never wanted to manage people. What I wanted to do was care for people. I would have been happy just to stay as a, you know, a student midwife forever, a student nurse forever, and actually, you know, just care, just do the hands, feed people, brush their hair, you know, shave the old men, the real tender heart-centered stuff that I thought nursing was about. So I decided to do my midwifery because I thought instead of being a doctor's handmaiden, which we very much were when we were nurses, you know, the doctors did rule that I could go into midwifery because I heard it was a an autonomous profession. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I'm laughing because it's so not nowadays. And what that meant to me was that I could make the decisions for my clients, not for them, but with them. And we could 
yeah, just go on that journey rather than being dictated to. And do you know what? It very much was like that at the start. It was great. You know, you had, we didn't have team midwifery. We didn't have continuity of care. Everyone came to the hospital to give birth. I never went to a home birth, never saw a water birth or a physiological third stage. And yeah, I came out of it knowing that I'd really, really cared for people. We were encouraged when we'd looked after someone on labour ward to follow them up, you know, go and see them on the postnatal ward. And and that was a really good start to reflective practice, which is what all birth workers should do. It doesn't matter if you're a, a doula or, you know, birth keeper, midwife. You need to see if your care has been effective. And sometimes you'll go and see that client and they'll tell you that it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really useful information. So I guess this was sort of late 80s, early 90s, maybe? Yeah, in the 90s. 88 to, to 90, mm-hmm. I did my midwifery, yeah. So in the UK, what would have been the usual thing at the time? Would with a post, like after labor and birth, then the woman would have gone into a postnatal ward. And how long would she have stayed there with the baby and... Yeah, yeah. I think the stay around that time was about five days. Mm-hmm. And we actually had physiotherapists that came around the ward and um, taught people, you know, leg exercises if they were in bed for a while, um, taught them about pelvic floor exercises, talked to them about um, lifting, what they could lift and do after birth. I mean, all that's gone, hasn't it? And I think, yeah, after a cesarean, it was considerably longer. I can't remember, maybe a week or longer. And do you know what? I think that was that was really good because although people are desperate to go home after cesareans, and most people are well enough to go home and just be nursed at home, most people aren't nursed at home. Most people have their cesarean and have to get up and deal with the kids. And, you know, if you're in hospital, you're away from that. Yes, you're more likely to get an infection because you're in hospital. <laughs> um But, you know, yeah, you're actually receiving the care because you are resting more. And, yeah, we had different ward setups then, you know, people that had caesareans because it was still fairly rare. I can't remember what the caesarean rate was. I don't know, 10 percent, maybe. I don't know. Um, People could have side rooms if they'd had a caesarean, you know, or a difficult birth. They could actually, yeah, get the care. Oh, and that was the other thing the physiotherapists did. They came to the ward and looked at people's perineums. So when someone had had a particularly difficult birth, forceps rate was a lot higher because we did less caesareans, you see. So people had really swollen and and bruised vulva and perineums. And, yeah, they used to use ultrasound and... Yeah, all sorts of wonderful things to to help them heal. Yeah, I think this is really interesting and also something to consider. I mean, in general, um, I'm quite interested in that kind of uh, postnatal care. Um, And my mom as well, I think, uh, and this is in Germany in the 70s. I think she stayed. I mean, she had actually by accident and home birth. (laughs) So I was born at home, but that wasn't planned. And... You would still stay, I mean, the woman would still stay in hospital for seven days. And how you are describing things, because as you say, women just don't get the rest these days, especially as often family or the setup is just not like that. And then women yeah. get up and they don't get the rest after birth and they do housework and they yeah. they they look after you know, things, um, yeah, because yeah. even with an, if the other partner, let's say, is there and is at home, sometimes that partner is also not able to do everything. And yeah, it's um, absolutely it's tricky. And I think it's a, such an important, for me, focus that that rest yeah. period after yeah after birth. But anyway, we can talk about that a bit later. I was just like, yeah. quite curious. Yeah, I've got so much that I'd like to say about the postpartum, but yeah, yeah. And home visits, you know, just really briefly. So your community midwife who you saw through pregnancy, I mean, it was it was team midwifery. It wasn't continuity of care, um, would come into the hospital with you if she could and then would certainly do your postnatal care. And she would visit twice a day on the first day you were discharged and then every day for a week. 
and then you would be on her books for 28 days in case you know you needed her care and that is so different now mm. you know when you everyone seems to be discharged at 10 days whether they've got problems or not mm. and the postnatal visiting isn't there so important yeah uh, or it is there for the first week, but I don't even think every day, um, no, at least a few years ago area. when I gave birth, that that's how it was then. There might be a few changes by now because that's seven years ago. Yeah, I think currently people get two visits and then a discharge visit and they're not even visiting them at home. They actually have to take their baby on day three into the local unit to be weighed you know it's, okay it's not good enough but there we are yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also I have experienced just by you know when I I became a mom and I was meeting people with their new babies so many women had problems i.e perinatal problems or fissures or all sorts of things uh, in that area and they were suffering with it for a long time so I think actually you know having somebody coming around really looking at you after that that's not that's definitely not happening, it's not happening. <laughs> um, or at least it wasn't happening in my case. Obviously, the midwife after birth, she had a look and she was saying, this is the scenario at the moment, but this kind of thing didn't happen after, yeah. you know, in, in that postnatal period. And yeah, I have seen women really suffer with it. And a lot of women really suffer because the breastfeeding start was so difficult and and stuff like that um and get yeah. then support would be so much easier if it was just there someone coming around than them having to phone and then talk to people again and then maybe arrange another appointment for something or yeah. go to a breastfeeding clinic you know by that time a lot of people have given up or it's just yeah. really stressful and, and they're so tired yeah they're so tired <laughs> they shouldn't have to think about how to get the care and where to go to get the care yeah. you know it should be provided but there we are yeah Okay, so um, where were you? I <laughs> Yeah, so I started my midwifery and it was what I wanted it to be, except we were in the era of active management of labour. And I didn't know much about birth before I became a midwife. It wasn't particularly an area of special interest. I went into midwifery so that I could travel because if you were dual qualified, you know, the world was open to you. You could go wherever you wanted. It would be, you know, an accepted qualification. So I did it with that in mind. And I did it because I, I didn't want to be a doctor's handmaiden anymore. So I went into it quite blind and we did active management of labour. And what that looked like in our hospital was if someone came in in spontaneous labour, we would assess them. You know, we'd offer them a, an examination. And if it looked like they were, even in the early stages of labour, we wouldn't send them home. We would then accelerate the process. So, and we sold it to women. I'm really guilty of this because I knew no better. We sold it to women that you don't have to suffer a really long labour. We can shorten it. You know, we can make it under 12 hours. Doesn't that sound great? Yeah, of course they all signed up for that. What it looked like in reality, we gave everyone an enema to clear everything out and try and speed things up. Everyone had a hot bath, again, to see if that would speed things up. Um, everyone had their waters broken at three centimetres. And I don't remember much in the way of informed consent. I remember us saying, you know, this is how it is. We don't want your labour to go on and on and on. So what we're going to do is give you an enema, you know, <laughs> put you in the bath. We weren't shaving people. Thank goodness that had gone out the window. We're going to break your waters. We're going to put a drip up you know, and you'll have your baby within 12 hours. And most people foolishly followed along. So we ruptured waters at three centimetres. If they weren't in cracking labour, even if they hadn't needed their waters broken, even if they came in in advanced labour, um, we'd put a drip up to make sure things were, were going really quickly. And then do you know what? We had a lot of forceps deliveries. Our epidural rate wasn't high, but of course, if you're inducing people, you're going to need the epidurals, aren't you? And that in itself leads to the instrumental births. 
people can't push their babies out if they're numb. Some can, you know, some can, but you're at more risk of needing a bit of help. So, yeah, so I became a bit disillusioned with it all. And unfortunately, when I qualified, one of my clients that I was caring for, her baby died and it was thoroughly investigated and I received no support from the hospital whatsoever. Now, I was there for the parent, supporting them in their journey in in the hospital and afterwards, and I received no support. And all I got from the head of midwifery was, I hope you've written good notes because this one's going to court. Wow. Now that's me as a newly qualified midwife. <laughs> so I decided that it would be safer to actually work in special care. So instead of rotating around antenatal clinic, postnatal clinic, labour ward, whenever it came my turn to go to labour ward and someone didn't want to go to special care, I'd take their slot. So I ended up working in the neonatal intensive care unit for about a year. And it was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Advocating for those babies and holding the parents, you know, while they're with a, a very ill or, or sick or dying baby. So, yeah, I'd say that was a really important part in my career. And then I left. I thought I found my ideal job in America and I handed in my notice and I was all set to go. And the paperwork fell through. Mm -hmm. School of Nursing hadn't filled in the paperwork and it fell through at the last minute. So I left midwifery. I thought, yeah, actually, um, I was looking for something else. Went back to nursing, long story short, for about 12 years. And then I started to be an NCT teacher because I I was still interested in birth. So I became an NCT teacher. Lots of my participants were asking me to to be a midwife again. I said, oh, no, I don't want to be a midwife again. By this time, I got a nice factory job as a nurse, which was paying really well. I did two nights a week. It was really well paid, really low stress. (laughs) Why would I want to go back to midwifery? (laughs) I did inquire with the university. And the university said, hey, we're interviewing tomorrow and this is the questions we're going to ask. Do you want to come along? Mm -hmm. And although I didn't imagine that I'd want to be a midwife again, I didn't need that hard work. I had young children by then. I went along and thought, yeah, I'll just go along for the experience. And they offered me a job and they said, you've got to do this return to practice for three months. And I said, well, I can't. I've got young children. I've got another job. I, I can do it only part time. So it ended up being six months. They offered me a job at the end of it. And I said, no, actually, I'm not working on the labour ward. I'll only work in the birth centre. And they gave me it. And I'll only work two specific nights a week because my factory job was two nights a week. So I couldn't be working day shifts in between my night shifts. You know, it's really. <laughs> and they gave me it. And I was just so surprised. So I got to work in a lovely birth centre for three years and I learned, I learned about physiological third stage. And well, basically the women educated me. So it was eye opening how little we did to women compared to how my training had been. It was absolutely fantastic. So the birth centre was that, that was at that time, there were um, already birth centres being set up within or next to the hospital wards, is that right? Or attached to an NHS hospital? Yeah, we were very lucky. So this is 2002. Mm -hmm. And we were very lucky in Hampshire, where I worked, that we had, I think, three standalone birth centres plus a midwifery unit in in the hospital away it was on a completely different floor to the the main obstetric unit mm-hmm. so we governed ourselves and it was it was fantastic i think we had maybe three four labor rooms and eight postnatal beds and we were full you know we were busy there was a birth a couple of births every day and a birth every night a couple of births and i loved it i really really loved it and i got out and i saw i saw home births you know, because the community midwives came in to staff the unit sometimes. Sometimes they didn't want to go to home births. So I'd go instead of them. And it blew my mind. You know, I'd already seen the difference between active management of labour and what we did to people in obstetric units. And then I saw what it was like in the in the maternity unit. And now I was getting to see another way of birth. You know, how people could give birth if they were really 
undisturbed and really on their own territory and in their own power. And again, it was mind blowing. And I'd always volunteered to go out to those births. And it always amazed me that some community midwives didn't want to attend home births. Hmm. Sure that's that's part of their remit. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I do understand it comes from bad experiences and not enough support and backup and all the rest of it. Yeah, so I'm trying to keep this short. It's really difficult because it is a 40-year period. <laughs> no, it's it's beautiful. And, you know, it's really nice to also be in conversation and, like, hearing, yeah, all these different experiences and environments that obviously I don't I don't know, I haven't experienced. So I think it's great. So <laughs> Yeah, and I learned so much on that birth unit. And I, I wrote up every birth that I attended because I wanted to learn from each one, each unusual one. You know, I mean, they're all unique, aren't they? I wrote all of them up, but I'd, I'd learn, you know, the positions that people got in and what helped them, you know, the chanting or the praying. or. And I think this is when the, the spiritual side of birth started to open up for me. And I saw another family who prayed as their baby was being born. So baby's head was virtually crowning. The woman was in the pool and I could see a good amount of baby's head. And she was breathing through it and her partner was supporting her. And then she stopped and really clearly she said, is it OK if we say a prayer? And I thought, oh, my God, you know, at this point, at this point where your baby's just about to crown, all the sensations are so intense and you've got the presence, you know, to actually stop <laughs> and say a prayer in this moment. It just I'm getting emotional now thinking about it. So they said their prayer and then the baby came. You know, it was as if everything stood still. So these little moments, these little, I don't know, little breadcrumbs, like a little path to the, the spiritual side of things. And I started to get addicted to it. <laughs> I actually think, yeah, I want to see more of that. I want to do more of that. And yeah, so there was lots of caring for people. There was lots of, if you're in early labour, just going to tuck you up and we didn't have hot water bottles but we did have heat packs that we could make and make we I think we had tens machines we could make people really really comfortable even though they didn't need you know the active labor care now people don't get that but yeah it was a, a lovely nurturing loving unit and I was actually fired <laughs> from that unit <laughs> Um, I would call it unfair dismissal, but I, I didn't have time to make a claim. Um, so I can't call it unfair dismissal. Constructive dismissal, let's call it. So one of my NCT class wanted um, labour care from me. So I spoke to the head of midwifery and asked how it would work because, um, yeah, I was very mindful that I was already working two jobs and what would happen if I was due to work a shift and then I was working for my client and she was paying me and the hospital was paying me, you know, it wouldn't be right. So we had this conversation and the head of midwifery said, go and book the woman. I'll speak to the, the trust lawyers and, you know, I'll get back to you and find out, speak to the legal team. Well, I booked the woman and came back and the head of midwifery said, yeah, I've spoken to the, the trust legal team. And you've breached your contract and you have to hand your notice in now. But I took that, I mean, as well as being quite shocked and sad that that had happened because I was loving working in the birth centre. I took it as the universe telling me that it was time to move on. And what transpired was I became an independent midwife. Yes, I hadn't planned to, to leave the birth centre because I really, really enjoyed it. But I had been thinking about independent midwifery. So here I was with one client and this client was a really, really big part of my path to becoming not just becoming an independent midwife, but becoming the midwife that I became. I don't know how to describe it. She was uh, wonderful. She won't mind me telling her story because she, yeah, she's given me permission many, many times. She was an absolutely wonderful woman who planned a birth centre birth and then developed preeclampsia, um, so needed to be induced. And I rushed to her in the middle of the night. I mean, why they decide they have to induce people in the middle of the night, I don't know, because it wasn't urgent. 
but that was when a space became available on Labour Ward. So we went in, she endured the induction and she didn't have any pain relief. This is one of those women who somehow, I don't know how, managed with just a bit of gas and air despite the induction. And she got to fully dilated and the baby wasn't coming. So they suggested forceps and they did the usual of giving her a spinal and saying, you know, we're not sure if the forceps will work. We might need to proceed to a cesarean. So the doctor was going to do the forceps. And I said, please, if you're going to do forceps and you don't think it's going to work, don't cut her. You know, don't give her an episiotomy because she's going to end up with two cuts. You know, and that's that's awful. So he was really kind and he he didn't cut her um, and, and did have a really good go at the forceps and baby wasn't coming. So then we proceeded to cesarean. Baby was born in good condition. Yeah. And all, all ended fairly well. Now, the woman stayed in hospital. I can't remember a day or two and that was then discharged. And I got a call from her husband on the day of discharge and I could hear her screaming with pain in the background. And he said, she's in so much pain and I don't know what's going on. And I said, don't matter what's going on, make your way to the hospital. I'll phone them and tell them that you're coming. This isn't right. You know, she didn't scream or cry in labour with an induced labour. You know, what? what's going on? So I, I phoned up the hospital and said to the labour ward coordinator, this woman's had a cesarean two days ago. She's in incredible pain. She's coming straight in. She might need emergency care, um, you know, just so that you can get set up. And the coordinator said, well, it can't be that bad, dear. Okay. So you've already judged that this woman isn't in pain. You know, you don't even know the woman. You haven't seen the woman. And you're already saying it can't be that bad. You know, yeah, yeah, it was incredibly bad. I'll try and cut it down. So over the next four weeks, I think it was, there were many trips to hospital where she received less than adequate care and the pain wasn't properly investigated and scans were booked and then cancelled and she was sent home and given antibiotics and her condition got worse and worse. And I was nursing in her, her in the community, visiting her every day over this four week period and she was getting a lot worse. And then she started vomiting. Now, this I know from my nursing days is a sign of bowel obstruction. She was having problems going to the loo and vomiting. So at that point, again, <laughs> I went to the hospital with her yet again and stood by her side and said, we need a surgical opinion. You know, we're missing something here. This woman is really, really sick now and really needs help. And eventually they got a surgical opinion and she'd had a ruptured appendix. So and because the ruptured appendix wasn't picked up, the infection was spreading and she had to have emergency surgery. They they did save her bowel. They had to cut away all this dead tissue and infection. And it left her infertile because the damage was so great because it hadn't been picked up over four weeks. And we knew there was a huge problem. We knew there was an issue and the hospital kept missing it. So, yeah, she was seriously ill, had this major operation and then you know, had to come out of hospital and with a new baby so I nursed her you know when she came out of hospital again this was a really really big point in my career because I realized that now I'm on the outside of the, the system they don't listen to a thing I say whatever I've observed whatever physical observations or anything else they're not going to believe you know this woman's going to turn up they're going to do her, their obs they can't find anything they're going to send her home again and it was a real big lesson in standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. This woman was seriously, seriously ill. No way could she fight for her life. And she's one of the very, very few people I can say, actually, I think I helped save that woman's life because no one was listening. She would have died. She would have died from um, peritonitis, septicemia, eventually. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that was my first client. Best client as an independent midwife. And because another reason why this is important, if you're going to claim for unfair dismissal, you have a six week period to claim in. So I was intensively caring for this woman for over six weeks and then thought, I think I've been unfairly dismissed, but it was all too late to do anything about it. So then I started my career as an independent midwife. And that's where the real learning begins. 
the actual learning from women, from families, from people that I'm caring for. They taught me everything that textbooks couldn't. I had a, it was a sort of mentorship based training that we did in the 80s. We didn't get much, um, it wasn't university education, it was, you know, learning on the job and you'd get a couple of weeks in, in school, then you'd be back on the job again. But it, it was a good training, but it didn't teach me what was really important. <laughs> you know, the birth centre started to teach me, you know, the environment and the support and the love, the spirituality. But then people were asking me to to support them in ways that I hadn't supported people in hospital. You know, vaginal birth after cesarean at home, vaginal birth after lots of cesareans at home, breech birth at home people with high BMIs, people with mental health problems. It wasn't an easy road. So anyone that thinks independent midwifery is lovely, you just get lovely fluffy home births and it's all perfect. No, that wasn't my experience because I supported everyone. I didn't turn anyone away. So if I didn't think I had the skills to care for someone, I made sure that I upskilled. I went on training courses, I read books, I asked my colleagues. So I had the skills and yeah, and then more and more complex cases came my way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And unfortunately with that, because I was dealing with high risk, a few of my clients did lose babies. So two of my clients with breech babies died and I had two clients who had infections in pregnancy and their babies died. Mm -hmm. So that sent me on another part of supporting families with grief and bereavement and I'm actually now a trustee of a baby loss charity because each time one of these awful devastating things happened to a family I'd I'd feel the impact as well you know of witnessing them in their grief and caring for them for many weeks after and not only that but being investigated after every single every single one even the you know the infections because one of the infections wasn't known we didn't know she'd had an infection she didn't know we didn't know yeah and each time it would happen I'd cry out to the universe why why do babies have to die why why this family why this baby why any baby and I wouldn't get any answer back and my spiritual beliefs started to grow in this area because I found I was actually praying you know, I was actually asking for the answers. Why is this happening? God, you know, if there is a God, I don't know what I believed in. And saying so many prayers that it wouldn't happen again. And saying prayers on my way to births. And saying prayers of gratitude when I came back from births. And the only thing I came to learn with time, because of course the universe doesn't just answer with words, does it? It doesn't, it doesn't come back and say, actually, Joy, this is why. <laughs> what I learned in time. And I used to think, oh, nature's so cruel, nature's so cruel. And then I came to the realisation nature isn't cruel, all kind. Nature is just nature. In nature, not every single puppy in that litter will survive. Not every litter a a cat has will survive. You know, not every seed that's planted will grow. You know, this is nature. This is what we're dealing with. And if we think as midwives or doctors that we can prevent all deaths, we're very deluded because we can't, because these things will happen despite our best efforts, despite the best care, whether we're in hospital, whether we're at home. Yeah, this will happen. Now, mm. I've got to balance that statement with there are lots of unnecessary deaths. You know, in the, the Embrace report, you know, there are always baby deaths that are attributable to poor staffing and negligence and bad care. So I've got to point that out. Some babies, you know, yeah, they just they just don't make it despite the best care. So that was the start of me getting into the more spiritual realms. And I still don't know what I believe in or who. It doesn't matter. As long as I send the prayers out, someone's going to be listening <laughs> and hopefully maybe, maybe hear my prayer. So then I came across Jane Hardwick Collins. I don't know if you know... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've heard her name, but I don't really oh my goodness. Yeah, know her work. Yeah. So. so she was a midwife in Australia, and she's maybe a little bit older than me. 
So he worked a long time as a midwife, retired as a midwife, worked with someone called Jane Papati Baker, who was very, very inspirational in her birth work in the, now don't quote me on this, but um, 60s, 70s, maybe 70s, 80s. She died young, but Jane was one of her friends and Jane learned a lot from Janine. And it was a lot of holistic care, how, how we can support people through pregnancy on, on very different levels, you know, not just nutritionally, not just physically, but spiritually, holistically, the whole package. So Jane with her midwifery and with Janine's teachings set up a course that was called Shamanic Midwifery. Mm -hmm. I embarked on this course in 2016 and it was a year-long course. And Jane came over, she lives in Australia, she came over four times a year to teach this course on long weekends. And we had a, a solo, we had a, a three-day in the wilderness um, fasting vision quest which was really illuminating. And halfway through our course, the Australian Midwifery Board contacted Jane and said she couldn't use the word midwifery because it was misleading. And people would think that she was training people to be midwives. Well, she was training people to be midwives because we were training to be with women. But because it wasn't the official <laughs> way of being with women, she wasn't allowed to do that. She got told off. So she, she changed it to shamanic woman craft. Mm -hmm. Right. And what we were training in is holding people in their major life transitions. So birth, first blood, pregnancy, birth, menopause, and eventually death. Although death wasn't a big part of the course, but yeah, these major transitions. Yeah, death is just one of my special interests. <laughs> so Jane Hardwick Collins' course was amazing. It made me look at what I was doing in my life it made me yeah it was like a I don't know some sort of soul awakening on a really deep level and I realized that I am actually an artist and I just I'd repressed it for so many years and I was able to embrace that again and I bought a kiln and I started doing pottery and I opened an Etsy shop and yeah that opened up my creativity and open me up more to connection with spirit because I am very land-based. My ancestors were potters, you know, they work with clay. So this mm -hmm. this love and yeah, yeah. So that was opened up and that opened my heart even more. And since then I've done training with Matthew Appleton. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard. No, I don't know very much of him either. Yeah. I actually just got to know about him through, um, you know, like you, basically, yeah. <laughs> like reading your stories. And, yeah. yeah, so he's based in Bristol. So he's a good local contact to have anyway. Mm -hmm. And he, he works with families who want to work around um, experiences their babies have had pre and perinatally. Yeah, and this often often presents itself as a difficult to settle baby a baby that cries all the time a baby that can't be soothed or an older child that's experiencing difficulties in their life and it was a two-year course um, spread over three years because we had lockdown in between and it is really hard to describe but it's about baby body language and how babies express themselves before they become verbal and how we can work with families and it's blooming marvellous blooming marvellous oh my god it is amazing because we don't have to work with families for long because babies can assimilate how we work with them and heal really really quickly so sometimes I've seen babies for one session and the parents don't come back and I think is it something I've done and I contact them and they say no he's so much better we just didn't need to come back yeah so have you used the integrative baby um therapy quite a lot and you have had quite a few no, clients no already. because at, at the moment I'm still trying to transition out of not being a midwife and not attending births so perhaps we ought to fill in that piece mm. yeah why not I mean I had sort of planned um to look a little bit more into what would be like the ideal environment for birth yeah. and our medical emergencies and realistic expectations and stuff mm. but why not look at that because it is such a huge I mean I myself already just with two friends 
who for various reasons had that but I think it's also really interesting because I'm not quite sure who said it to me it might even have just been my midwife when I was giving birth but she said you know the birthing process quite something it's but it's actually can be um quite traumatic for the baby really <laughs> too and I actually took my daughter when she was a baby to a craniosacral therapist because mm -hmm. I thought they were doing in a way something similar so for example if babies had locked themselves into funny positions at during birth and stuff and then you know yeah. things wouldn't flow that well um yeah. so I had heard about that and I took her for a session I think only not a couple um, but it sounds like the idea is very similar. So it would very be quite, similar. yeah, interesting to hear what you do with that. So. Yes, yeah, so Matthew Appleton is a, a craniosacral therapist as well as a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. And he sort of combined the two approaches with his training in pre- and perinatal psychology and sort of married, married it all together. So when babies are pre-verbal, um, they they store any experience in their body. It's a, a somatic experience. They feel it in their body and it's stored in their body because they haven't got the, the language. They haven't got the, the centers of the brain which are developed for, you know, making sense of things and um, storing things as pictures and relating to other things because they develop later. You know, in the first three years of life, baby's brain is continuing to develop. And that's why they have the the soft spots which don't close you know the head is growing exponentially yeah so until until all those centers are developed babies are storing all their experiences in their body which is why the cranial sacral therapy works so well and that's always my first go-to with these babies that are upsettled unsettled if you can go to a cranial sacral therapist see if babies help that way and if if not you know come back come back to me <laughs> And I've only had a few clients because I'm still working as a birth keeper and just haven't got enough time in the day. But what I do, I see babies <laughs> that come to my groups and parents come to me in the group with their crying, struggling, distressed baby. And I say, look, you can come, just come for a session. And yeah, let's see if we can do something to help. And it is such a simple therapy and it's a it's a whole family therapy so Matthew calls it an integrated baby therapy but it's about the whole family and sometimes we can't even work with the child if there's something really present for the, the parents that they need to talk about so their traumatic experience in birth or around conception or threatened miscarriage whatever it was so we've got to provide a safe container for the parents and um, make it safe for the baby to, to tell their story because baby and the parents are one unit you know you probably already know this because you're a mum but you've got your electromagnetic field so your heart produces impulses doesn't it you know we can measure it on an ECG so we have these electronic impulses which can be measured 10 foot or so away from the body so we've already got our heart field baby's got its own heart field baby doesn't know it's separate a separate being for months and months and months after birth it thinks it is still part of the mother or person that gave birth to them which is why babies find it so difficult to sleep away from you you know i think to be with you all the time yeah so we we see the family as one unit and if one person in that session is upset they're the person that we have to work with it might not be the baby but in working with the parents it helps the baby <laughs> because they're all part of that that heart field a lot of it is observational a lot of it is yeah just watching the baby and babies can indicate a lot about their experience in the womb and their birth experience and afterwards just by how they move by how their hands might indicate something you know if there was a cord involvement um, if there were forceps, yeah, just little subtle movements. But if parents are noticing a repetitive movement happening, it's good to be curious about it and think, oh, I wonder if that did have something to do with the birth. And that's all we do as therapists. We say, oh, that looks interesting. You know, I wonder if that's related to something. We don't come up with answers because the baby isn't telling us, like, <laughs> 
this is how it happened and this is what I'm working with because it can't. It can only show there was this feeling, there was this thing that happened, you know, someone did this, you know, that that's what we're working with. But yeah, so I've had a handful of, of clients that I <laughs> I sort of self-select when they come come for help in, in my pregnancy group. And it's it's remarkable. So most of it is paying attention to the baby and what the baby says. So when a baby's crying, it's communicating, isn't it? We all know that. And there are different types of cry. And if an adult came to us crying, we wouldn't say, shh, 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 shh. We'll try and, I mean, we might try and rock them. That's nice. It's nice to have, you know, the physical touch and the arms around you and things. Um, but we wouldn't be trying to silence them, mm. you know. We'd be making sure all their needs are met. You know, do you need the toilet? Do you need something to eat? Do you need something to drink? But we wouldn't then try and silence them in the way that we try and silence babies. True. Yeah, you know, I haven't. Have yeah, interesting. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> have more breast, have a dummy. Let's try and, you know, stop you crying by jigging you. And th there's no guilt here. There's no blame because I was one of these mums who had a really difficult birth with my first child ended in a cesarean they were very damaged by it physically we didn't know about cranial sacrotherapy so i tried to stop this baby crying for about three months four months you know the the colic yeah that it's called so many things come under that title of colic and some things we can actually work with rather than trying to shush shush our baby because it's painful yeah. when our baby cries it's painful for us we don't want them to be upset we don't want them to be in pain. And yet the same is with an adult. Sometimes we just need to listen to their story and we can pay direct attention to them, can look at them and listen to them and feed back what we're seeing. You know, if baby looks distressed, goodness, you look so upset and I'm here for you and I, I hear you and I'm here to listen to you. And it's remarkable what that little practice can actually do for babies. Wow, that Just sounds that. beautiful. I'm, yeah, I'm so, I'm really touched <laughs> by that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's already just a touching thing and a beautiful thing to do in communication between adults, but also just having the same kind of attitude towards the nonverbal. And um, I, I totally understand. I mean, firstly, it's painful, the crying. And so you want to stop it somehow. So you can obviously very easily go into the like the silencing mode. Yeah. Um, but we, we also have a lot, I think, still in our culture where I see it in parenting, even when the children are already, let's say, verbal, but whatever, you know, often they can't actually like tell you what is wrong still emotionally especially in those first six seven years of life I mean in, for example with my daughter it's often just like oh she is tired and she's hungry she doesn't know and then she goes into this <laughs> thing yes like yeah with most children when they get really cranky and adults too when they get cranky when they are tired and hungry I but I see it again and again that there's this whole thing of like oh my god I don't want my child to cry or behave badly in public or cry so we need to distract them or whatever and 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 I always feel a bit uncomfortable with it but also just acknowledge, okay, it's um, you are feeling like this now. I don't need to distract yeah. you from anything or whatever, but just like, yeah. okay, let's pay attention now. And a no is still a no for this. <laughs> yeah. so keep the boundaries up, but Absolutely. just try and go, okay, Absolutely. what do we need now? Rather yeah. than I just distracting them or, you know, all these strategies yeah. of like making it better. But I feel often it's not making it better as such it's more like it's more an outward focus rather than an inward or like a focus on making it better for the child it's more like making it better for the other adults that are present or something <laughs> so they don't have to witness the child crying yeah. and it's like hmm, okay yeah anyway that's just some personal yeah observation with, with all, yeah mm -hmm. with our best intentions and again we work with older children and we work with adults mm. in integrated baby therapy so yeah when they become verbal and they can't really name what's going on for them <laughs> uh, 
but it might be connected with something really, really deep. Because when we're when we're conceived and our, you know, we have our experiences in the womb and we have our experiences during birth, and they're deep within our bodies and can be triggered by seemingly normal situations. So leaving the house, starting school, waking up, going to sleep, any of these transitions can remind us on a cellular level about birth or our, our time in the womb. Mm-hmm. So all of it, all of our experiences, all of our reactions are rooted in our very first experiences because they're the really deep neural pathways that we formed as our brain was forming. So everything that happened during pregnancy and birth matter, you know, and this this is why I'm still attending births <laughs> as well as trying to move into being a, an integrative baby therapist because it all matters. All of it matters. Yeah. But yeah, so a little bit about working with older children. So again, we can name the emotion that we see, you know, as well as listening, you know, finding a, a space in, in your busy life to, to listen to the child and just feeding back what you see. I can see you're really frustrated. You know, I can see that you're angry with me, whatever it is, and see what comes out of it and see if there's any repeated behaviour. You know, it's good to see if there's anything that they do in that time you know provide a safe space provide a loving space and yeah observe at a, a nice distance so they don't feel they're being observed but you're available um what we do we, we work a lot with play i've got all sorts of toys that kids can use and it's not like we sit kids down and say you know show us what you want us to work with <laughs> we just put all the toys out and observe how they're interacting with the toys and playing with the toys or the pictures that they're drawing, or we try and simulate some point of the birth. So we may make a tunnel, you know, mm-hmm. see what happens if the child wants to go through the tunnel or not through the tunnel, and what happens when that child comes out the other side, and, and what that child needs when it comes out the other side. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we're running out of time again. Goodness. Yeah, time goes so quickly. So I'm wondering, as we have now focused on, I call it your new venture, but obviously that's not. It's just a sort of progression on your journey into the integrative baby care. Maybe we can try and, yeah, come to a sort of summary or closure of um, our conversation. But I was wondering if we could maybe focus on or if a good question would be just to give an image of like how you are practicing now as a sacred birth keeper and also, you know, obviously all the other stuff you're doing. And also as we have focused on the postnatal care, maybe anything that you would like to add, what you find like really important to to say about postnatal care, really, would that be good? <laughs> yeah. So I left the midwifery register in 2001. My sister had passed away and that had changed me fundamentally, you know, and my path ahead became even clearer and it wasn't in midwifery. So I became a a sacred birth keeper. And what what that looks like is I, I do attend births. I work with people through pregnancy and I certainly care for them after birth. That's the bit that I really love. And during births, I don't tend to do what, what good doulas do. So I'm absolutely in love with doulas. I think everyone should have a doula or a birth keeper. And doulas are really good at, you know, the biodynamics, the rebozo, the massage, the, you know, being really proactive at a birth and, and supportive and nurturing and all the other things they can be. More and more, when I attend a birth, I do nothing absolutely nothing and that sounds dreadful doesn't it It sounds absolutely dreadful I've got a couple of health conditions I've got ME and a couple of other things and my energy is limited so when people want to work with me I tell them I I can do those things but I'm probably not going to do those things if you want those things you know get a doula that can do those things what I'm good at is just providing the 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 container you know the space for you to be able to birth in the way that you want to birth 
So there's there's no ego in the room. There's no I need to do anything or be anything or save anyone or you know any of that rubbish. Well, I did the Paramanadula course with Michel Audin and Lindyala Lamas, and basically they said the perfect midwife is the granny that sits in the corner and knits and doesn't do anything but just sits there and knits yeah. so that sounds just yeah. like that yeah. to me I'll tell you, I, I... <laughs> so in a way the perfect yeah. <laughs> the perfect yeah. midwife so and I, I don't birth, knit so. I've got a, an arm injury so I don't knit but what I do do is sleep really really well so <laughs> often at a birth and I tell people <laughs> this in advance they know what they're getting when they book me if it if it's over a night or if it's over a couple of nights, I'm going to be sleeping a lot of that time. And although it sounds dreadful, people want this. And people that have had this actually say how beneficial it was to hear my soft snoring in the corner of the room. <laughs> it's bizarre. All, all those years, I thought I had to do something as, you know, midwife or birth keeper, and I don't need to do anything. But it's it's the presence. It's the, yeah, it's the person there that's really important yeah absolutely i mean it is a little bit i guess like the sort of it's maybe not the right word but this ease of our society you know we always have to do 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 yeah. all the time or provide a service and do yeah. but do we <laughs> you know especially in yeah such major sort of life transitions and rites of passages often the witnessing and just being there in presence is like witnessing yeah, holding the most important and sacred thing really yeah so as we don't have that much time more I would yeah. really just what do you consider like really really important postnatally okay so it starts with prenatally, of course, doesn't it? Of calling in your, your village, calling in your tribe and being very organised about it. You know, particularly if you're a lone parent, you want to call people in who you can call on afterwards. Everyone needs help. Everyone needs support. You need to make sure you've got lots of food that you can eat afterwards easily. You won't have time for cooking. You want people to be able to go to the shops for you if you've been up all night with your baby. You want people maybe to do your laundry now and again if your washing machine breaks down. You need that community. You need that tribe. And I'm really, really happy to say that in Glastonbury, we are building that village. We actually have it and it is working. There's a brilliant woman called Rebecca who helps out in our pregnancy classes and she, she runs her own yoga classes. She's a brilliant woman and she set up something called Mama Village. And there's a WhatsApp group of like 80 families. And when people are struggling, they put out a call. And even when they're not struggling, you know, they pass on equipment and clothes. And, and they put out a call and someone will deliver a hot meal to them. You know, someone will be able to come and help. Someone will be able to take them to hospital if their kid's ill. You know, it is working. It is beautiful. And that's what everyone needs. The community and the being held. And could you just say something maybe about your experience about the sort of rest period for the mum? Oh, um, yeah, definitely. Because I have done some reading that the rest period in some cultures in Africa and on the Indian subcontinent, mm -hmm. that there's always this 40 days, and I'm not sure why it is 40 days um, period, after birth where the woman is yeah. basically taken care of she is pampered yeah. by others right. she is not yeah. even supposed to really leave her abode or the house and yeah. yeah that the woman is really supposed to like properly rest um and for me it makes sense because it actually took me just physically it took me that long to heal like i i did actually not stop properly bleeding for like five six yeah. weeks so no so yeah so i've got lots of takes on this so physiologically the uterus takes six weeks to involute to go back to its pre-pregnancy place in in the pelvis and the size that it used to be so as you said you can be bleeding for all that time you're establishing breastfeeding you're very short in sleep um, so it makes sense people need to rest and be cared for. As a midwife, I was very dictatorial 
about this. And I think because I'm older, I can still be dictatorial and telling people they must not leave their house for at least two weeks. Now, people in our busy society find that really difficult, let alone the thought of six weeks or 40 days. And I always refer to the first 40 days, that lovely book. Have you got that book about rest and nutrition? I can send you a link. I can't remember who it's by. It's absolutely perfect. It's absolutely fantastic. If people can get rest and support for the first six weeks, that is absolutely ideal. Most people find two weeks a struggle. Yeah. But yeah, if they if they can be under house arrest <laughs> and not be entertaining visitors for two weeks, you know, that, that will set them up. They'll get more rest, they'll get more sleep, breastfeeding will go better, they'll re- recover their energy better. And people are desperate to go out, aren't they? You know, desperate. Yeah. Because, I don't know, too busy, too busy in our lives. Joy, thank you so much. This was like really great. And although we went sort of All over. slightly off piece of what I thought we were going to talk about, um, it, it's definitely, I think, yeah, it's it's a really important focus. And it was great to hear about your, you know, your life experiences as well. And um, also about the integrative baby therapy. I Yeah. Anyway, um, so thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Joy. It definitely has made me think a lot about listening to babies with a different ear. And for me, it's also always fabulous to listen to somebody talking so authentically about their life and life path. And yeah, our life paths and choices are so complex. If you're enjoying this podcast and find the subjects interesting, I would so appreciate uh, you taking the time to write a quick review on the podcast platform that you use, especially with Apple, Spotify or YouTube. It helps so much in getting the podcast out there to more people. Oh, and visit my website on www.mothermouth.co.uk and subscribe if you like to. You will only be contacted when new episodes are available. Thank you so much and thank you for being here. Bye for now.